Welcome to The Broad Experience, the show about women, the workplace, and success. I'm Ashley Miltite. This time, women, decision-making, and risk-taking. People often think that a woman leader who's made a mistake should be demoted, whereas a male leader who took a risk and it didn't work out, sure, he made bad judgment, but, but he doesn't lose as many status or competent points. Women make a lot more big decisions than we used to, but even today, our judgment isn't entirely trusted. But first, this episode is supported by Right Speak Code. Right Speak Code is about owning your expertise. As a woman and woman-identifying developer, their conference gives you the skills to be more visible and to lead through writing, public speaking, and an open source contribution. This year's conference is in Chicago from June 15th to 18th. For full details and registration info, go to rightspeakcode.com. Therese Houston is a cognitive psychologist. She's also the founding director of the Center for Excellence in Teaching and Learning at Seattle University. And she's the author of a new book called How Women Decide, What's True, What's Not, and What Strategies Spark the Best Choices. For centuries, most women didn't get to decide anything that happened outside the home. Until pretty recently, our brains weren't thought to be up to the task. So in the United States, women received the right to vote in 1920, which is after almost a dozen other countries. In fact, the UK, you'll be proud to hear, got the right to vote for women in 1918, although it's actually kind of funny because at the time, only women over the age of 30 were allowed to vote. (laughs) It took a while before younger women were trusted with their judgment. But in any case, the UK was ahead of the US on this one. So that's 1920, 50 years later in in 1970, women were still being denied lines of credit, suggesting that women couldn't be held accountable for making their own financial decisions. One of my favorite stories here is uh, about Billie Jean King, who many of us know is a world champion tennis player, and she won three Wimbledon titles in a single year, which meant she brought in tremendous earnings, enough to cover all of the expenses for her family. Well, she tried to get a credit card in her own name, but the banks wouldn't give her one. The only way that she could secure a credit card was if her husband was listed as the primary person on the account. Now, we could point to some logic here if her husband had an income, but he didn't. Billie Jean King was putting him through law school. So we have this long history of of women not being trusted to make important decisions. And there is a hangover from that history. Society still has trouble seeing women as decision makers. Therese points to a Pew Research study from last year. It found people saw men as more ambitious than women. But there was an even bigger gap on decisiveness. Men were perceived as much more decisive than women, at least men leaders. And that's a real problem because there's this continued perception that if you want someone decisive and you want them at the top, what you want is a male leader. But she says when it comes to healthy adults... The research actually shows that men and women are just as likely to struggle with a decision. It is the case that there are certain populations like teenagers. Evidently, female teenagers are less decisive than male teenagers. But then they're not usually leading anything either. A few years ago, Therese wasn't thinking about any of this. She came to this project by accident. One day, she started asking her academic colleagues about their pet peeves. One psychologist said all the books about decision-making are written by men. Therese had quite a lot of these books on her shelves. She'd never noticed this. 
Then she realised not only were they all written by men, but all the decision makers they focused on were men too. They were all things like stockbrokers or airline pilots. And they were fascinating examples, but I suddenly had this lens and this realisation that there was a real gap of not looking at women as decision makers. And it became, it's something that nagged at me. I I set aside the topic for about six months because I didn't want to write about gender. And, and this topic wouldn't let me go. Everywhere I looked, I would, see, I would see this glaring gap. Why didn't you want to write about gender? You know, uh, I find it very... My, my experience when I was growing up in grad school and as a postdoc was that it was very gendered to study gender. Most of the people that I knew that studied gender were women. And it, it didn't seem... It shows my own bias. It seemed that the hard problems were the problems that the men were studying. So I turned towards neuroscience, and I was the only female in our lab for years. And sure enough, I got to address some very interesting and hard problems. But it's been fascinating. Writing about gender is actually much harder than writing about neuroscience, as it turns out. In what way? How has it been harder? It's harder because when you're talking about neuroscience, you can use terms that people mostly don't have any clue what they mean, right? So I can talk about the hippocampus, or I can talk about the lateral prefrontal cortex, and uh, that might be impressive, but there's a good chance that most of your listeners won't have any context or frame of reference for that. Whereas if I talk about what it's like to make a contribution in a high-pressure meeting and you're going to propose a new idea and how men and women might do that differently, people have plenty of experience with that and strong opinions. So trying to explain what the research has to say about gender is stepping into a complicated set of experiences that people already have or they already have opinions and they might be more skeptical of the research. Welcome to my world. But back to the way we see men and women and the fact we don't instinctively see women as leadership material, Therese says there's this jargony academic term, role congruity. This idea that when we think of a leader and we think of a man, those two concepts have a lot of overlapping qualities, right? We think of men as ambitious and action-oriented, and we also think of a leader as ambitious and action-oriented. Whereas when we think of the qualities of a woman and a leader, there doesn't tend to be much overlap. Um, Women are thought to be more friendly and more compassionate and more nurturing. And we may like those qualities in a leader, but they're not the qualities that we immediately want. We want a decisive leader and we expect men to be decisive. And we don't expect that of women, for instance. And also, you point out that women's decisions are questioned a lot more than men's are, or at least when when they're decisions that not everyone agrees with. So for instance, when um, Marissa Meyer, who as we speak is, is still the CEO of Yahoo, when she made that famous announcement that she no longer was going to allow Yahoo workers to work from home that she wanted everyone in the same place at the office, there was this storm of media coverage and criticism over this. And and then um, a week later, something else happened. Talk about that, because I had absolutely no idea about that. So you've captured it perfectly. Most people know that Meyer ended 
the work from home policy for Yahoo, right? It's almost synonymous if you talk about work from home policies. Marissa Meyer's name comes up. But what people don't know, and I'm so glad you asked about this, is that about a week after Meyer announced her decision, Best Buy CEO Herbert Jolie announced the exact same decision that they were ending Best Buy's work from home policy. For those of you outside the US, Best Buy is a big electronics retailer. Now, when Jolie made this announcement, it made a few headlines, particularly in Minnesota, where Best Buy is headquartered. But, you know, there were some headlines for a few months, and then the story vanished. Whereas we're still talking, I've seen interviews even this year, where people are debating, was it a good idea for Yahoo and Marissa Meyer to to cancel the work-from-home policy? Now, you might be thinking, well, you know, Yahoo probably has more employees who work from home. And that's not the case. According to to many reports that actually give the numbers, Best Buy had approximately 20 times more employees who were affected by this decision. So if we were really talking about the decision to change a work from home policy, we should be talking about Jolie just as often. And for making the same decision, Jolie got a few sidelong glances, whereas Meyer has been second guessed for years. And why? Because, just because she's a female making a decision that affects a lot of people's lives? Well, this is, a, this is an interesting, co- complex issue. When I've talked about it with some people, they say, well, it matters more that Meyer made this decision. First of all, they, they don't know about Her- Herbert Jolie's decision. But once they find out about it, they will say, well, it matters more that Meyer made this decision because she's a woman and we expect women to be more understanding of other women who perhaps need more flexible work schedules. And I think that's an excellent point, but it still shows an an underlying bias that we're judging her decision differently than we judge men's, that we're expecting women to look out for the flock, (laughs) that we're expecting women to have a different set of criteria, whereas men in the same leadership role can make a decision based just on what's the bottom line. And get away with it. And as she says, part of the problem we have with women making these kinds of apparently harsh decisions is we expect women to come from a different place. We expect them to care more. And we often expect them to be collaborative. And you know this, you've probably read about this, that being collaborative, that's something women are supposed to do well. It's seen as more of a female trait. And it's usually seen as a positive thing, this business of listening to others and seeking consensus among your team. On the one hand, it makes perfect sense that people want a collaborative and cooperative supervisor. But the problem is people don't perceive that collaborative and decisive mix. If you're a leader and you want people to weigh in on a decision, hmm, well, one interpretation of that is maybe you can't decide for yourself. So the upside, you're being collaborative. Your employees are going to like you. The downside is this very important quality that I mentioned earlier of decisiveness. Oh, you know, you just lost some points on the decisiveness scale. And that's a real problem for women because women often take a collaborative approach. Not all women, but women, but many women take a collaborative approach to decision making that probably perpetuates this perspective that decisiveness is not a strength for women. She tells the story of a woman she interviewed for her book. This woman said, whenever a female manager at her company had a big decision to make, there'd be a line of people waiting to give input. 
And as this employee put it, the last person who touched it would influence the manager's decision. And when I asked her, well, well, why don't the men have a line outside of their door? And she said, well, when the men make their decision, you'll find out <laughs> that there's, there's no opportunity for input. They'll let you know if they want input. And so I think this gets us, takes us to what might be the possible advice for women. And that is that if you uh, are, are open to input, to make it very clear when you're taking input and whose input you're prioritizing and why. Which does sound like a lot of extra stuff for women to think about. But she says doing that could prevent people from assuming you sway like the wind. So you can be seen as both decisive and collaborative, and it's not seen as an open-ended free-for-all. I'd love to hear from people about this. A lot of you listening have plenty of decision-making experience in a work setting. Email me via the website, or better still, leave a comment under this episode or on the Facebook page so we can get a conversation going. Making a decision involves taking a risk. By deciding one thing, you're dropping other options. And Therese found that despite the overwhelming belief that women are risk-averse, it really depends on the type of risk you're talking about. She says when it comes to workplace decisions, men and women take equal numbers of risks. But if women are risk-averse in certain circumstances, is that surprising? Maybe you've read about this research too, or you see it in your daily life. I read about it in an article a couple of months ago, and Therese writes about it in her book. But when men and women were observed with their kids in the playground, the psychologist doing the observing found parents of either sex were far more protective of their daughters than their sons. They were more likely to say, be careful, to a girl than a boy. And when a boy didn't want to do something like climb down a fireman's pole, the parents pressured him to try it. If a girl said she was scared to try the pole, the parents were like, "Okay, that's fine. And when a girl did go down the pole, her parents rushed to assist her, even if the girl didn't ask for help. When a boy took on the pole, his parents didn't offer physical help. They just coached him from the sidelines. So it's definitely associated with men, and we can see that. I think our language is very telling on this. In American culture, there are phrases like, man up, and a man's got to do what a man's got to do, and be a man or a mouse. That one's not used that often, but, but the idea is that yeah, you, you, need, you need to stand up and take a risk here. And there, there aren't comparable phrases for women. Yeah, we've got things like nervous Nelly. Nervous Nelly, exactly. Right. If anything, uh, there's, there are phrases that suggest women should shrink away from risk. <laughs> In terms of women being punished for taking risks, there's some really interesting research showing that, and some of this research comes out of Yale University by a Professor Victoria Breskel, looking at when men and women take a risk and they make a mistake women are judged much more harshly and they lose a lot of status points. In fact, people often think that a woman leader who's made a mistake should be demoted, whereas a male leader who took a risk and it didn't work out, well, there were a lot of circumstantial reasons why that was a problem. Sure, he made bad judgment, but but he doesn't lose as many status or competent points. So it becomes this tricky issue. The whole point with taking risks is you don't know how it's going to work out. You don't know how people are going to respond to your idea or if leading this complex project is going to be a success. So taking a risk inherently involves a bit of uncertainty, and women are are penalized much more when that uncertainty becomes a failure. 
As Therese was talking, I started thinking about the Brazilian president, Dilma Rousseff. Since Therese and I spoke, Rousseff has been suspended from office and she may be impeached. Now, I don't know a lot about what Rousseff may or may not have done to fiddle Brazil's budget, but I couldn't help wondering, if Rousseff were a he, would he be undergoing the exact same process of investigation and removal from office? I wonder that as well. I've been following that news story a bit, and one of the things that some reporters are commenting on is that the corruption that's happening under Yamahusef's political career that's happened recently, that, that there have been previous male leaders who had the same problems with corruption, that this is nothing new. And so the question is, why why is she being grilled for this and why does she face impeachment when this has gone on for a while. Now, other people would say that there's a a level at which this has happened in terms of her moving around funds that are particularly suspect. But I think that gets at another issue, another bias against women. The assumption is that women will be more honest. I, I don't talk about that in my book, but that's one of the findings out there is that women will be more honest than men. And it makes me wonder if women are then held to a higher standard for honesty than men are, that a male politician who's a bit corrupt or that they misrepresented the facts, we can brush that aside. But it's considered to be a feminine quality, to be honest. So if a woman defies that and does something that's clearly dishonest, I think it raises our hackles more than it might for a man making the same choice. And of course, that made me think about Hillary Clinton. Her honesty and openness keep coming under the spotlight. You know, one of the things that Clinton is is lambasted for is that she won't admit her mistakes, right? That she doesn't apologize, that she hasn't really apologized for those emails she sent over her own server. And a lot of people would say the same thing about the the situation in Libya where the US ambassador was killed along with some colleagues, that, that Hillary Clinton that this is one of her big failings, that she kind of doesn't admit that she's done something wrong. And with reading the book, it made me think, I wonder if that's a Clinton trait or if her sex and her knowledge of how she'll be judged if she does say sorry affects the fact that she doesn't say sorry. It would be fascinating to ask her that question, right? If she would be, (laughs) if if one could have a candid conversation and... I wouldn't be surprised if even at a subconscious level she's that that that's playing into her reluctance to take ownership for those things because she probably hasn't read the research but the research certainly indicates that when women make a mistake and it becomes clear that that it was a costly mistake then they're they're held to they're held under more scrutiny and it's judged as as a more serious indictment of their abilities. And so I think it's probably easier just to let people debate this out and and for people to take different perspectives and make different arguments as to whether the problem is as big as other people say than for her to step in and, and admit and apologize. On the one hand, Americans love an apology, right? They, they love it when people take responsibility for their mistakes. But on the other hand, that's primarily been male leaders who've, who've done that and been able to continue being male leaders. And so there's a real question of, of what kind of competency and status she might lose if she were to do that. 
I'd love to know if there's a female politician we're forgetting who's actually said sorry publicly for something. Maybe she survived or lost her job, but I'd love to hear about it if you can think of anyone. Therese says risk-taking is like decision-making in that more people need to see women as risk-takers. On that note, she has some advice. It's important for women to draw attention to the successful risks that they've taken. And I'll admit, this is never a piece of career advice that I've received. And when you're listing, you know, when you do your year performance review and you're listing your accomplishments, you're typically pointing out events that were well attended or a project that brought in a lot of capital. And one of my suggestions would be that a a thing to do when you're discussing your performance with your boss in a one-on-one conversation would be to point out, here's a risk that I took and here's how it worked out. This, no one expected this event to work, and I pushed for it, and it ended up being our best attended event of the year. And the reason that I think it's important that we begin doing this is that when men take risks, we tend to notice it much more than when women take risks. Researchers have done studies where they actually they give people identical descriptions of actions that someone took in their workplace, and people will notice the risks that the man took And if you just substitute in a female name, they don't notice that those were risks when it was a woman. So she says if you're in a workplace that values risk-taking, try it. She says a male colleague might get credit for his risk without needing to raise it, while your success could be overlooked. And if this sounds like another example of women having to do more to get what we deserve, it is. That's the broad experience for this time. Thanks to Therese Houston, author of How Women Decide, for being my guest on this show. If you're in tech, don't forget to check out Right Speak Code. Their conference is coming up in mid-June. Thanks again to those of you who've taken a couple of minutes to write an iTunes review of the show. I'd love to get up to 200 reviews. That's only 45 to go. If you can help, great. Having ratings and reviews does help the show get noticed. I'm Ashley Milne-Tite. Thanks for listening. I'm Andrea, founder of a boutique handbag brand, Andy, and this is why I switched to Shopify. I tried three other platforms prior to Shopify, and I remember my breaking point was when I would try to make one little change and my entire site would go down. With the drag-and-drop theme editor, we don't need to hire a developer to do any coding. Each theme is automatically optimized on mobile. It's incredible. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Go to shopify.com slash listen to take your business to the next level today. 